may be seated. And as our, uh, our men come forward to receive the offering this morning, uh, while they're doing that, if you would, uh, if you've got your Bible with you, why don't you open it up to Matthew chapter 2. If you have your smart device uh, and you want to go to the YouVersion Bible app and just hold that there. Uh, uh, I, you know, I don't know about you. It just blows me away that next week is Christmas. Does that, I mean, is that blowing anybody else away? It's like, man, it's coming up fast. Seems like it's moving really quick this year. And I hope that you've already been thinking about, so I want to remind you of this, uh, as, as we, as we prepare this morning, um, I hope you've been thinking through Christmas Eve services and who you might, who you're inviting. You've already begun to drop the hint, and maybe even if you've picked up one of these cards out of the lobby uh, that tell when our Christmas Eve services are, services are. I hope that you've been able to uh, uh, invite some folks. And just so you know, I wanted to make uh, clear as well. So we have uh, there'll be child uh, children's programming available at almost all of our services. I'm gonna say it real clearly, all right? So uh, first of all, on Friday and Saturday night and uh, Sunday afternoon, we will have nursery and preschool available at those three services. At the service next Sunday morning, so we have Friday night and Saturday night, nursery and preschool. We have Sunday morning at 11 a.m., full children's classes, special stuff going on for our kids at 11 a.m. if that's when you're coming and bringing your friends. Uh, and by the way, so with all the children's programming, if you've got some children that you would like to invite, that's the great time to do it. And, uh, and if you want to bring their parents, you can bring them too. Uh, and then that afternoon at uh, 3 o'clock, we have nursery preschool. And then 11 o'clock next Sunday night, it's all in this room. There's no children's programming at all. Uh, a week from, a week from, can you believe that? A week from tonight. Uh, so I hope you'll be able to uh, enjoy that and invite some of your friends uh, to come to that. You know, one of the things we associate with Christmas is gift giving. And I have no official, there's no scientific data, but I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that the number one question that is asked at Christmas time, especially asked of children at this time of year, right? What do you want for Christmas? Have you asked a child that? Have you asked somebody that yet? What do you want uh, for Christmas? I mean, I gotta tell you, as a kid, I loved that question. Uh, that was my favorite. And I'm, I'm wondering how many of us are old enough that you remember when you were a kid looking through actual catalogs, hands, real catalogs, not these little skinny flyers. I'm talking meaty catalogs, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, and now you can go online and see all those cool things. But I, I'm, I'm hoping this morning, what I want you to think through just a little bit, and it's on your notes, so if you uh, haven't pulled that out yet, or if you're on the U version at the very top, what is it that makes a good gift? Because gift giving is such a big part of what we do. What is it that makes a good gift? Is it the amount of money that we spend on it? Does a good gift only come from certain stores and so it only has a, a certain name on, on the gift? Uh, is it a gift? Or maybe we go the, totally the other direction and it's a practical gift. If it's not practical, it's not a good gift, right? Uh, maybe that's it. Uh, and so, uh, and as we go down this line, I want to put to rest anyone who thinks I'm about to put a beat down on gift giving, all right? Because Jesus said this, um, it's more blessed to give than receive. So, and I, you know what? I buy into that. And you've heard me say things like this. I think it's on your notes, right? You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. 
You've heard me say things like you make a living by what you get, you make a life by what you give. And I believe what Jesus said. And I believe those quotes, mostly because they reflect the truth of what Jesus says. And some of you have heard me say this as well. Throughout Christmas, my personal goal for you, my goal, this is my goal for you. I hope it becomes your goal for you. But my goal for you at Christmas time is no debt left in January from Christmas so that you're not worried for the next three, four, five, six months how you're going to pay for this past Christmas. Now, that's my personal goal for you. Uh, and let me say one more time, I am not going all Scrooge on you today. I have not overnight turned into the Grinch uh, here. I love Christmas. I love giving. I love receiving. And I think as the kingdom of God, I think as the kingdom of God, we need to make sure that we're not picking up any unhealthy tendencies from our culture. So... As a matter of fact, it's my opinion that the church should be influencing the world about how we celebrate Christmas rather than having the world influence us on how to do this. So this morning, what we're going to do, I'm going to pull the curtains back a little on the Christmas story to help us see what was going on in the world that Jesus was born. Uh, when he was born. And we'll do it through two names in our Christmas story that if you've ever read the Christmas story, if you've ever heard the Christmas story read, you've heard these two names. My guess is you might not know how much influence they brought to bear on the Christmas story. So we're going to check that out. You ready? Matthew chapter 2. If you've got your Bible open, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It's on the U version. It'll be on the screen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Now, we we'll stop for just a moment because most of us, my guess is we know this part of the story. And even though you may know this part of the story, maybe what you don't know or, you know, you've heard some misconceptions about these uh, kings. They're not actually kings. They're men of regal office. It's actually believed that they were priests in Persia who specialized in um, astrology and dream interpretation and magic. And they've been following this star, looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. So they show up in Jerusalem because if you're going to find the next king, he's going to be born in the capital city, right? Uh, the problem is this king isn't being born in a palace, which begins to explain verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And I just want to say, you cannot underline those two words enough. You can't bold them enough. You can't capitalize them enough. You cannot emphasize those words enough because if Herod wasn't happy, listen, this is true because if Herod wasn't happy, nobody was happy. He was called King Herod. But the reality was he was appointed governor. And then seven years later, the Roman Empire gave him the title king. And then later they imposed upon him this title, king of the Jews. And you've heard his name, but you just need to know he's a real Jekyll and Hyde kind of guy. In some circles, he was known as Herod the Great. And part of that's because he kept the peace in Palestine, which was really hard to do. Uh, and because he was responsible for a lot of great buildings and he could be incredibly generous. He was in that way. He was wealthy, politically gifted. He was intensely loyal. Some of his enemies admired him. That's the kind of guy Herod was. Also known as a murderous old man. He was insanely jealous and suspicious. If he suspected anyone as a rival to his power, that person was eliminated immediately. He murdered three of his own sons because he thought they were a threat to his throne. He murdered his favorite wife. Favorite wife. Uh, 
and his mother-in-law, but I'm not sure that had anything. I, uh, listen, that's why if you know him, verse 16 doesn't surprise you. It's still appalling, but it doesn't surprise you to find out that uh, Herod put this story together that these wise men told him. He put the timeline together, and then he ordered the death of all the children two years old and younger. It's because of that story they told. And just case, just in case you're wondering, who's in charge when Jesus is born? It was Rome. Rome was in charge. Herod was kind of a big deal, not a huge deal, but kind of a big deal. He was also kind of a something else, but we don't use those words in church, all right? But that's who was in charge locally when Jesus was born. That's one of the names. Here's the other name. It's in Luke chapter 2, actually. Uh, and people uh, in, in, uh, in Luke's day would have understood just reading the name, what was going on. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, the Roman world in that day stretched from what we call India to what we call England today, and they crushed anyone who got in their way. So a brief history lesson. We'll keep it brief, and hopefully we'll just keep this moving. A general by the name of uh, Verus responded to a revolt in a city called Sepphoris right around the turn of the century. He burned the city to the ground, slaughtered the population, crucified 2,000 people that day. Now, when I was in Israel several years ago, I got to go visit where Sepphoris was. It was a city less than four miles from Nazareth. That city, that name may sound familiar. Nazareth is where Jesus grew up as a child. And when Verus destroyed it, Jesus would have been a teenager. So as a teenager, Jesus would have seen literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of crosses lining the road near his house. So in case you're wondering who was in charge, Rome ruled the world when Jesus was born. So part of our Christmas story, I want you to understand part of our Christmas story that maybe you've never heard about is that it starts in the shadow of this incredibly powerful empire. Not, okay, not that empire, wrong, wrong empire, all right? Yeah, it is pretty close. <laughs> so the birth of Jesus takes uh, place uh, uh, against the backdrop of the Caesars, which, by the way, if you don't know, is, is, is not a name. It's a political title. Some of the Caesars were better than the others. Hadrian, Trajan, maybe you've, maybe you've heard the name Marcus Aurelius, relatively not so bad. However, there was a, a, a guy named Caligula, kind of a wacko, and as the story goes, he, he planned to appoint his horse as chief counsel to Rome. Um, many of them were men who abused power. Caesar Augustus is the guy Luke mentions. His real name was Octavian. He was the adopted son of someone you've heard of, Julius Caesar. Octavian goes about the systematic process of getting Rome to recognize him as a god. And because Rome was full of gods, that was no big deal to them. But when Julius Caesar died, Octavian said that Julius was a god, which made him a son of a god, right? And when he took the throne, he gave himself this title Augustus, which means the revered one. He called himself that. Now, the poets of his day, so not in the Bible, but poets like the royal poet Virgil, wrote of a child who would come and mediate between heaven and earth, who would bring about a big change in the human condition, who would bring about peace and happiness. And Augustus sets out 
to convince the empire that he is that child. So you start to see statues of him popping up in pagan temples. This priesthood develops around him. When Rome would go in and destroy a town or a city, they would erect a monument or a structure that was to bring glory to Caesar. Historian Ethelbert Stauffer, and I put his name up here not because you would recognize it, but just because, seriously, we do not name kids the way we used to. We need to bring that one back, all right? But Ethelbert believed that you could determine what a culture was like by studying the phrases on their coins. Look at some of the phrases he noticed from that day. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. There is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Caesar is Lord. All on their coins. Caesar is the one who will bring peace. Caesar is the one who will bring happiness. As a matter of fact, Augustus uh, created this 12-day celebration of his birth that he called the 12 days of Advent. You see where we're going with this. This is on a collision course with a group of followers of a Galilean carpenter named Jesus that they said is Lord. As a matter of fact, Peter, who's one of the early leaders in the church, is on trial in Acts 4, and he makes this proclamation. See if it sounds familiar. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The early church had taken some of those political propaganda, and they started injecting Jesus' name into it to make this point. Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. By the way, that's the kind of thing that got people killed back in the first century. When people would pass on the street, when we pass on the street today, we say hello or hi or, you know, something like that. What they would say is Caesar is Lord. The person would respond, the Lord is Caesar. But Christians wouldn't. The Christians would respond, Jesus is Lord. It's the kind of thing that got people killed in the first century. Francis Schaeffer said it, uh, said it like this. I want you to see his words. Let us not forget why the Christians were killed. They weren't killed because they worshiped Jesus. Nobody cared who you worshiped as long as the worshiper did not disrupt the unity of the state, which was centered in the formal worship of Caesar. The reason Christians were killed was because they worshiped Jesus as God and they worshiped the infinite personal God only. The Caesars would not tolerate this worshiping of the one God only. It counted as treason. Now, I'm giving you all of that, which you don't ever see on a Christmas card, because it is the backdrop against which the church emerges. How do you think it went over in that culture when the early church started telling the Christmas story? Go back and read the Christmas story now, understanding this backdrop. When the angels say that God is going to bring peace to all people. When the angel appears to Mary and says, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. The Lord God will give him the throne of his, of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Think about what that meant to them in that day with that kind of oppression from the government. Even more, the question for us isn't so much what did it mean to them, what do we understand about then? The question for us today is what does it mean to us at Christmas time? I'm going to give you all of that because I want you to understand there are still a lot of Caesars running around in our world. We just don't call them by those names. But if we're going to be honest, sometimes we bow down at the wrong altar. In our culture, it's acceptable to bow at the altar of beauty or the altar of sex, or power, or education, 
or fame or influence. And listen, there's nothing wrong with any of those things if they are enjoyed and experienced in the context in which God intended them. At Christmas especially, the message of the Caesars comes through ads and commercials and flyers. And we are being told that the way to really enjoy Christmas is to buy these things, right? Because to show someone that you love them, you want to buy these kind of things for them because we, all of us in this room know that every kiss begins with, there we go. Uh, and Forbes magazine says that Americans are expected to spend $1 trillion this Christmas holiday season. It seems to imply that perhaps the message of the Caesars is getting through because there's this voice that whispers, the more I love someone, the more I'll buy for them. The more I think of you, the more expensive your gift will be. And if I really love my kids, we will pile the gifts up to the ceiling uh, in the living room. And I'm embarrassed to say I have believed that lie. Dr. Thomas Holmes and his colleagues at the University of Washington have done considerable research in the area of human stress. Maybe you've heard uh, of his work. They measured stress in terms of life-changing units. And on the scale, uh, the death of a spouse is 100 units. Um, divorce uh, is 73. And pregnancy rates of 40. Remodeling your home is 25. Interestingly, Christmas is 12 stress units, just on its own, without anything going on. Uh, Christmas. <laughs> Is 12. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there might be some correlation between that and the message that we're receiving. Here's the truth. You ready? It's on your notes. I want to make sure you get this. One way I show you I love you is by giving you gifts. It is one way. Because remember I said a little bit ago, and I believe this, and I think you believe it as well. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving, right? right? We know that to be true. But one way is giving you gifts. They may not cost a dime. They don't have to cost anything. Some of the gifts that I give don't cost a, a penny. Look at that first question again. What makes a good gift? So I'm going to ask it again. Is it the amount of money that you spent on it? Uh, is it is it the store that it came from, the name that's on it? Is it that it's an, just a practical gift? Or is a good gift one where you, you, you thought through what the person you're giving it to would enjoy? And, and, and you communicate love and care through that. Because I want to make sure you get this as well. You ready? On your notes, giving does not equal buying. I really want to make sure you get that. I, I, on your notes, it says this as well. To the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you might be the world. So your gift, can I suggest your gift this year be to give a whole day to someone? Can you do that o over the next week or so, maybe the next couple of weeks with the holidays and if you've got family coming in? Can you, can, can you take part of those days and just get down on the floor and play with the kids that are going to be in your house? Can you, are, are you able to do that? Can you give that kind of gift? Can you do a random act of kindness for somebody? When you're out this week, what would happen if you held the door open for someone? I was going in a, uh, coming out of a store the other day, and there was an elderly lady coming up, and if she's old to me, then you know. Uh, and so she's coming up. She's not even close to the door, but I saw her coming. So I stood there, and I waited, and then when she got there, I opened the door for her. You should have seen the look on her face. She couldn't believe someone was holding the door for her. 
What's happened? It can be us. We can do that. It can be as simple as a note or a heartfelt I love you. This is, this is why we slow down. We've talked about slowing down this month. This is why. Because the best gift you can give is you. You're the best gift you can give someone. By the way, this is a picture of the youngest road. It's also known as El Camino de la Muerte. Does anybody speak Spanish? The road of death. That's exactly right. It is legendary for its extreme danger. And in 1995, the Inter-American Development Bank christened it as the world's most dangerous road. It goes from Bolivia to the Amazon River Basin. Why is it called the most dangerous road? One estimate is that 200 to 300 travelers are killed yearly on that road. Every year, 200 to 300 travelers are killed. Uh, the road includes crosses that marks where uh, many uh, vehicles have fallen. And when you look at it, there are no guardrails, huge drop-offs, fog, rain, mudslides. It's just a bad stretch of road. Here's what I think is interesting about it. Starting in the early 90s, it's become an increasingly popular tourist attraction. Now, some of us are looking at it going, who are the idiots that would possibly, and others of us are going, <laughs> yeah, we got to go do this, right? Because listen, we, we know that it, it would make a great story. It's crazy, but some people would do it and their thinking is this, I know it's crazy. I know it's dangerous. And I know that, I, I but I would be different, right? I, I know people die on this road every year. But I would be able to make it. And it happens every single day. Every day, people go down roads they have no business going down. And they tell themselves, I'll be different. I can handle it. I could navigate it. I'll make it. One of the most dangerous roads we can go down at this time of year is I show you I love you by buying you gifts. And it's super easy when we're, especially when we're busy, because it's quicker to buy something and give it to someone rather than to take the time to spend with them. And sometimes we can buy someone a gift and drop it off and they're not even there. And we've really saved time when we do that, right? And if you go down this road, especially at Christmas time, Christmas becomes little more than a checklist, a to-do thing. Think through what you've been doing over the last several weeks, perhaps. Has it been reduced to that for you? You've got this checklist of things you have to buy, things you have, people you have to get things for. And you will buy more. And you'll give cool things to your friends so that they'll think cool things about you. And you will begin to judge your, you don't even know, you, you will begin to do this. You will begin to judge your self-worth by your net worth. And I just want to say, I'm not against stuff. I like stuff, but stuff sometimes keeps us from noticing Jesus. And my always wanting more teaches my children and my grandchildren and the generations that follow teaches them to always want more. And I'm telling you, I've struggled with this. We've been working on this for years in our house. This is why we slow down. It's not just for the sake of slowing down. Last week, Adam reminded us that we slow ourselves down at Christmas so that we can actually seek out God. This is important. Please write this down. Today, I'm reminding you that we slow down so that we can give more of ourselves. 
I am reminding you right now that the reason you're being called to slow down this week and the week after that especially, but it doesn't end at Christmas time, is so that we can give more of ourselves. When we're moving fast, we can't stop long enough to give ourselves to anyone, not God, not your spouse, not your children, not your parents. You don't give away any of yourself. You give away other things so you don't give away yourself because you don't have time to give away yourself. And you are the best gift your family could ever receive. So today, your next step. Today, this week, especially over Christmas, I'm not saying it's wrong to give gifts. I'm just reminding you, the best gift you've got to give is you. So if you're a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, you live next door to some kids, you have kids in your life, take time to play games with them. Video games, board games, card games, imagination games. Take time to play with the kids. Sit down and talk to someone. Have a real conversation with them. Ask them how they are and what's going on and then sit there and look at them like you're really interested in what they're about to say. Hold hands and watch a Hallmark movie. <sighs> that hurts a little to say. Uh, <laughs> there's a gift that'll cost you. I'm just saying. This week we had a family in Miamisburg lose their home, burned to the ground. You may have heard about it on the news. We're helping. We are in the process of helping them. We have a family who has a house here in the area that they are opening up to them. This has happened very quickly. The house wasn't ready for that. And so this week, we're going to help clean out that house and then clean up the house because no one's been in it for a little bit. And it's, and it's empty, really. I mean, so we need help cleaning it out and then cleaning it up to make sure it's ready for this family. And then if you have furniture or if you know of someone who has furniture they're trying to get rid of, because there's no furniture in this house. And somebody lost everything. They lost it all. And you may have something. They've already uh, spoken with threads to help with clothing. You may have something in your possession that you're not even using that you can help. So today uh, in the back of the room at the end of the service, uh, Weena will be back there. And we're asking if you can help Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. If you could help us with this. I want to look at the title of this morning. Let compassion trump consumption that's what this is all about because the caesars are telling us something else but let your compassion trump consumption and so every week we stop and practice this our time of communion ought to be a time when this is easy to remember because especially at this time of the year it ties the two most important days of our calendar together christmas and easter and with what we're doing right now, especially at Christmas, reminds us not just that Jesus came, it reminds us why he came. I love this quote, it's on your notes. The best gift the world has ever received came wrapped in a manger. Molly Brown said this, and I love this, Christmas is love tugging man back to God with the powerful grasp of a tiny hand reaching out from a bed of straw. Look at this next one. Christmas is the time of year we remember that God gave the gift of his son because we needed him, not because we asked for him. 
what the angel told Joseph. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child that is in her has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the Lord's promise came true, just as the prophet had said. A virgin will, be, will have a baby boy, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. His best gift is his presence, God with us. That's why we stop and remember every time we get together like this, not just that he came, but why he came. And we celebrate the life he gave for ours. Why don't we go to him in prayer? God, thank you for moments like this in a season like this. And the voices that sometimes I'm not even sure we, we hear them, but we're not, we just don't even pay. We, we allow them to subconsciously get into our thinking. And so we begin to do things without realizing what we're doing. And when we stop, when we, when we take this time to remember who's who in our life, we stop and remember that this story of your, of your son being born on earth is bigger than just the Christmas story, that that's just the beginning, that, that the cross is why Jesus came. God, and we allow that voice to speak into our lives more loudly. It reminds us to slow down. It reminds us to hold in our hands these emblems that remind us of the body and blood of Jesus. And as we remember, as we remember that we are people who struggle with sin, and so, of course, we struggle at Christmas time. God, may we listen to your voice. May we slow down. May the best gift we give be our presence. And in this moment, God, may we commit that back to you as we recommit our lives to you by remembering your son. And we pray this in his name.